1: A woohooer, a hand clap a high-fiver. I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
2: As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places –
3: Like we discussed in our episode on spiders back in episode 94, people can overcome their fears with continued exposure and education. But for many of us, there's an almost innate fear of snakes that's so primal, so powerful, that even the most harmless of these animals can send us running in terror. And that's just for normal-sized snakes. Now, what if the snake in question were 20 feet long and slithering towards you, its body as thick as your thigh? The glistening scales, the staring lidless eyes, the tongue darting in and out as if it were longing to taste you. 20 feet long. Those are real. But stories continue to slither in of snakes much longer, and the Internet is littered with fantastic photos of alleged serpents, monsters where the links are claimed to be 40 or even 50 feet, Here's an example, an audio clip about a famous giant snake photo from the Congo. This is excerpted from the series Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, a favorite of mine. This is famous Belgian pilot, Colonel Remy von Leerde, describing a giant snake he saw while flying over the Belgian Congo in 1959. To make several passes over the hole where the snake was in, enabled to let the man take a picture of it. And I made
2: certainly between four and six passes right over the hole where the snake was in. By then I was already flying for 25 years, so I have a very
3: good experience of uh, measuring things. And I would say the snake I saw there was close to 50 foot, close to 50 feet. I don't know you say 50 foot or 50 feet, but very close to certainly. It's actually
0: quite unlike anything we've ever seen before.
3: Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and together with Dr. Karen Stolzno, we're going to talk with author and snake expert John Murphy about giant snakes. From the Garden of Eden, to the River Gods of Asia, to the Midgard Serpent, legends and myths about giant snakes have been a part of human culture for thousands of years. I'm fascinated by these stories and by the real animals which inspire them. When Monster Talk was just an idea... Before I even knew how to put together the show, this was one of the topics I knew I wanted to cover. But finding a giant snake expert who was also willing to talk on our show turned out to be more difficult than I expected. Fortunately, we finally found one, and he's got some amazing facts to share about the real world of giant snakes.
0: Monster dog.
3: John C. Murphy is a research associate of the Division of Amphibians and Reptiles at the Field Museum of Natural History. He recently retired from a 38-year science teaching career to write about reptiles, amphibians, and biodiversity to do photography and research whatever topics attract his attention. Thank you for joining us on Monster Talk. John.
2: Well, thanks for having me.
3: So I'm sitting here looking at your book, Tales of Giant Snakes, A Historical Natural History of Anacondas and Pythons. Uh, Can you tell us uh, and the Monster Talk listeners. What drew you to the study of these enormous snakes?
2: Well, I've always been, uh, been interested in snakes in general. And obviously, the giant snakes are the most spectacular snakes on the planet. And also, believe it or not, much more common than most people realize. And very poorly studied. So Bob Henderson, who uh, has also been interested in boas for a very long time, he and I got together and collaborated on that book.
0: So, John, many people have a, a fear of snakes, and some people think that it's a, well, some say that it's an innate fear. So how's the general public's negative bias towards snakes impacted your career?
2: Well, it's actually probably made it much better than it otherwise would have been. <laughs> because, uh, really, people are, are very conflicted about snakes. You know, some people will tell you that they're, they're totally afraid of them, but at the same time, they will ask you questions about them or tell you stories about them. And in reality, I think um, there is sort of this uh, duality of, uh, of fascination and curiosity about snakes as well as the the fear of them. Mm-hmm. And this, I believe, is is kind of the result of human ancestors evolving alongside of some very large snakes as well as uh, many venomous species of snakes for a very long time. There's a an anthropologist at the University of uh, California named Lynn Isabel, and she's written a couple of books and papers about the human fear and fascination with snakes. And she basically says that the coevolution of giant snakes, and particularly venomous snakes with human ancestors, has sort of pre-programmed our brains to uh, have this... Fear and curiosity about them, and is also responsible for our excellent near vision and um, probably some behaviors like declarative pointing.
3: (laughs) That would be, that's a very specific benefit we might have gotten. (laughs) Uh, So I I think from uh, before I even started this show, but we were just thinking about the show, uh, giant snakes was uh, definitely one of the topics we wanted to cover um I, I think going back looking at uh old photos of people uh carrying enormous snakes out of the jungle uh in the you know the 1920s and teens and um people who've allegedly taken photos from the air of giant snakes and i there have been at least dozens maybe more maybe hundreds of of uh giant snake photos that have been faked using photoshop and various things that have come across my desk uh, in the intervening years. But wh- what makes a, a snake a giant snake? I mean, what is how do we define giant in terms of uh, these serpents?
2: Well, there's a study that basically says that the optimum size for a snake is one meter. In 1961, a herpetologist by the name of Clifford Pope wrote a book on giant snakes. And he used the sort of standard of about 20 feet as describing a snake as a giant. So when Bob and I wrote that book, we decided that we would use 20 feet or 6.1 meters as the standard size that a snake should meet in order to be classified as a giant. Now, in in Pope's book, he considered six species of snakes to reach something close to 20 feet. And one of those snakes was the boa constrictor. The common boa constrictor. And at the time he wrote that book, there was supposedly a record sized boa constrictor that was at eighteen point five feet. Unfortunately, that turned out to be a misidentified anaconda. And boa constrictors probably rarely exceed uh fourteen or fifteen feet, if if they get that big. Wow. Okay. So and huge. so <laughs> This is this is the kind of thing that happens when when people get excited about snakes they tend to exaggerate and make and make mistakes. Mm-hmm. So um, we we stayed with the 6 point the 6 meters or the the, uh, the 20 feet as the standard for being a giant snake. Okay.
0: And so how did these giant snakes evolve their giant size? Uh
2: there's several different Hypotheses about why giant snakes became giant snakes. Uh, probably the first one is is that they evolved larger sizes to feed on larger prey so they were not competing with uh, smaller sort of average sized species. And uh, there's another hypothesis that would basically say, well, uh, snakes that are larger can produce more eggs. Uh, and larger offspring than snakes that are smaller. If males, male snakes choose larger females to mate with, then they are promoting in future generations that there's going to be larger females to reproduce with. And then uh, there's also this idea that the bigger the snake is, the more difficult it is for it to lose heat. So if you're an ectotherm like snakes are, and you depend on being solar-powered, if you evolve a really big size um, and the temperature drops a little bit below what you would otherwise like, you, you may not lose as much heat as a smaller snake would. So those are kind of the major ideas about why snakes may have evolved larger sizes.
3: Monster Talk listeners are probably uh, very familiar with Titanoboa, um, the, probably the largest snake fossils that have been found to date. Do, what other prehistoric snakes do we know about? I mean, how much of the fossil record uh, do we have of, of the evolution of snakes from their whatever ancestors were? Snakes did evolve
2: from lizards.
3: Okay, so it's not, they, they just diverged from lizards. I wasn't sure. So
2: Yeah, they okay. did. And and many snakes, many groups of snakes, you know, they have remnant remnant legs, they have a remnant pelvis, and I understand now that there is even a fossil snake Uh, that they have found that has four legs. This has sort of been, the evidence has sort of been accumulating for for quite some time. There's a lot of arguments over whether or not the ancestral lizard that gave rise to the snakes was uh, a burrowing species or an aquatic species. And whether it was a very small species or a very large species. So without straying too far from the topic of giant snakes, all of the giant snakes today have remnant uh, pelvic girdles. So they have a uh, a little spur that comes out externally that's sort of the remains of a claw. And there are muscles attached to it. It's larger in males than it is in females. And male pythons and boas use that during courtship. As far as the fossil record goes... Uh, there are other pretty good-sized snakes besides Titanoboa. In in uh, 1901, Charles Andrews, uh, a paleontologist, described Gigantophus uh, garstenia from um, uh, eastern Egypt. And he estimated it to be between 29 and 31 million years old. And it had some pretty good-sized vertebrae. Uh, and he originally estimated it to be about 30 feet or 9.1 meters. Another guy came along in in uh, 1905, and he described it, the same snake as being between 50 and 60 feet long. But uh, I think that Andrews was probably originally correct based on the size of the vertebrae that he got. Th- these snakes, by the way, were in a, in a totally different family than boas and pythons. Uh, they were related to modern-day File snakes, uh, which are there's three or four species of file snakes, and they're totally aquatic, and they're they're primarily uh, Australian and. Uh, South- I knew it.
0: <laughs> I'm from Australia, so
2: the first thing that
0: anyone asks me um, whenever they know find out I'm from Australia, they ask me about snakes and spiders.
2: <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> And how many venomous snakes have you have seen in Australia, right?
0: Yeah, and in all of my years there, just one. I saw a brown snake one day when I was going on a
2: hike. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of these, um, these fossil remains are from this family that's called Paleophia. And uh, some of them got to be, you know, at least the size of modern day, of big modern day boas and pythons. And uh, most of them were aquatic. At least the bigger ones were. So uh, Titanoboa is, is certainly the most famous one. Uh, they estimate it to be 13 meters or about 42 feet. And it came from Colombia, South America. So it was related to, it, it, it was a boa. It was related to anacondas and the common boa constrictor.
3: That's a big snake. Yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> so John... Were there any evolutionary advantages, or or are there any evolutionary advantages of being a giant snake versus a more mundane or typical size snake?
2: Well, I I think the the evolutionary advantage would be that as long as there's food supply for really big snakes, they're okay. But when the size of the the, the available food drops, uh, then they have to eat smaller prey, which They have to eat larger numbers of smaller prey, which may, in fact, uh, put them at a disadvantage because snakes like to take in large numbers of calories all at once and uh, sort of hang out in one spot for a long time and digest their meal. And if they have to eat a lot of smaller prey, then they have to spend a lot more time uh, hunting.
3: So it's like Thanksgiving, but you just stay in the living room for months. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I've
0: read a lot of stories of uh, giant snakes eating tigers and elephants and large animals like that. Are any of those
2: stories true? I wouldn't, I I would hate to say that they're not true, but they're probably not true. (laughs) Uh, Elephants, you know, a small elephant and a really big python, um, the elephant. Could be killed now whether or not the Python could eat it or not I, I sort of doubt it right. uh, sometimes snakes kill prey without actually being able to swallow it it turns out that it's just more than they they could actually handle uh, as far as tigers are concerned the um, sort of the, the really classic modern giant snake story that sort of kicked off I believe all of the other um, Giant snake stories was a story that was uh, written by somebody who was probably um, using a a pseudonym. Is the the article was published by somebody named R. Edwin rather in August of 1768. He claimed that he had an encounter with a giant snake, which was eating a tiger uh, in Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka. The, the article first appeared in a London newspaper, and then later it was published in Scott's magazine. And it's pretty obvious that the story had no real basis in fact, because as far as we know, tigers have never been present in Sri Lanka. But no. <laughs> uh, this, this, story, this story has kind of an interesting twist to it, because it is the first time the the an, the word anaconda has ever been written in the English language and the, and the guy called this snake an anaconda and of course anaconda today is applied to a large boat in South America not a python from Sri Lanka so uh, it sort of brings up this issue of where the name anaconda actually uh, came from oh, and uh It's 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 a fairly long and involved story about how this name originated, but it seems to actually all go back to a clerical error that somebody made in the Leiden Museum. (sighs) (laughs) It happens.
0: It does. It does happen with the word kangaroo as well in Australia.
3: We we talk about giant snakes, but besides their size. are they different in any particular way from smaller snakes of the same you know, behavior type? Like if we have constrictors here in Georgia, is the constrictor here in Georgia, if it, basically the same kind of behavior is going to be taking place, uh, only on a bigger scale?
2: <laughs> um, okay, well, wh- there are lots of snakes that use constriction. Sure. Uh, not just boas and pythons, but things like king snakes and rat snakes. Right, which right. Which you would have in Georgia. And, um, yes, I mean, uh, the constriction process is is sort of similar, but there are differences between, you know, the constriction behavior that's evolved in boas, pythons, and let's say king snakes and rat snakes. So uh, even though it it basically works the same way, um, there are probably the snakes are probably actually carrying it out slightly differently. Because constriction, it looks to me like probably evolved several different times, just like large body sizes, you know, and snakes evolved several different times, uh, probably maybe a, more than a dozen times.
0: So are any of the constrictors venomous as well?
2: No, not as far as we know, but there is this um, idea that the lizard that was the ancestor to snakes uh, was really carrying the genetic material to make venom. That would mean that uh, that that ancestor uh, was passing on that genetic material to all its descendants. And uh, venom is actually an ancestral trait in snakes, which means that potentially all snakes are venomous.
3: Okay.
2: And this, is, this doesn't mean that snakes are any more dangerous than they were before we knew this. It just means that um, it, it explains why some snakes that people thought were harmless are actually capable of giving you a venomous bite. Okay. That's interesting.
3: So, and, and even if they are not, they may still carry the genes,
2: right? Yeah. Um, for example, garter snakes, you know, a widespread group of snakes in North America. They have a gland that produces some toxic molecules, which helps them subdue their their prey. Uh, and they normally, you know, would never inject that into a human, unless, of course, you smelled like a frog. Or- <laughs> <laughs> if you've been if you've been handling frogs and you picked up a garter snake and it bit you, you're likely to get a dose of a dose of venom from it. Wow! Wow! Wouldn't it? Wouldn't put you in the hospital, but. You might have some swelling. So,
0: <laughs> don't rub yourself with a frog.
2: <laughs> I Except I, I that we just
3: got uh, African frogs for Christmas here, so that's actually a real risk now. <laughs> 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 do uh, do giant snakes have uh, natural predators besides people?
2: Well, uh, certainly the smaller ones do. You know, when they're when they're hatchlings or after they've just been born, in the case of the boas. Uh, you know, they can be eaten by a wide variety of, of predators, uh, raptors, uh, wading birds like herons, and lots of uh, crocodiles, turtles uh, may prey on them. But after they reach a certain size, you know, the number of po- potential predators is dramatically reduced. So, so, so
3: you've already mentioned it, but let's just be very specific. What are the biggest snakes on the planet today, and how big do they
2: get? Well, um, I can tell you which ones are the biggest ones. Exactly how big they get, I can just I can just kind of guess. Um, the anaconda is probably probably uh, the the lo- one of the longest snakes, in and in by far and away, weighs the most of any other snake of equal size. Um, reticulated pythons are uh, also probably the they, they may. Get longer than reticulated python or uh, longer than anacondas, but um, they would uh, an anaconda that was twenty feet long would weigh much much more than a reticulated python that was twenty feet long. Those are the those are generally the two considered to be the two largest snakes on the planet. That is large. <laughs> yeah. Well, both of those, uh, you know, they I, after I wrote the book Tales of Giant Snakes. And people would ask me what, how big the snakes get. I would say twenty-eight and a half feet, based on a twenty-eight and a half foot reticulated python that was supposedly maintained at the Pittsburgh Zoo named Colossus. Now, um, Colossus, it turns out, the twenty-eight and a half feet length on it was not correct. And when some people followed up on this, it turns out that Colossus was much uh much smaller than the twenty-eight and a half feet. So um the largest reticulated python is probably gonna be somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty five or twenty-six feet. Um, the anaconda uh again probably reaches about twenty-five feet. And uh past that there is the African python. Uh, nobody has got a good maximum on it, but probably 23 to 24 feet. Uh, the Burmese python, again, probably 24 to 25 feet. It's it's the Australian scrub python uh, in in uh, Queensland rainforests has reported to get to be 28 feet. But um, I, if, it, if it got to 20 feet or 23 feet, I wouldn't be at all surprised.
3: I saw that's, that. I, I think the uh, the Bronx Zoo has a, a, a cash prize of fifty thousand dollars for a, a live snake of thirty feet long that's been standing for. I think the prize has been out there for about a hundred years now. <laughs> and nobody, that's, that's about right. Yeah, mm-hmm. nobody's collected it yet. Uh, well, so
0: that rainforest region in Queensland's right near where my mom lives. So I will have to go and pay her a visit and.
3: See, I, I think what's been happening is everyone's been looking for this snake, the 30 feet long one. And what they should have gotten is a good, healthy 25 foot and
2: fed it a lot. Well, here's the problem with that. You know, there's a lot of people who have tried to do this. Oh, really? Wow. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of people who have decided, well, I'm just going to go get some big snakes. and I'm going to pack them with food and see how big they get. <sighs> but nobody's been able to do this. I mean, uh, and... One of the issues, of course, is, is that you really need to start with younger snakes so that they, uh, because when they grow fastest is when they're young. And um, a lot of these pythons can reach 10, 11 feet at the end of their uh, second to the middle of their third year of life. Wow. Hmm.
0: So is it feeding them that makes them large? I mean, does that really determine the length?
2: It seems that yes, food availability seems to uh, cause at least some individuals to grow faster than than others.
3: Okay.
2: And uh, there's this hypothesis called the silver spoon hypothesis that basically says that smaller snakes that are are born when food supplies are uh, readily available and abundant will grow much faster than snakes in that are born in years when food is is not as readily available
0: okay and um to go back to colossus for a minute you were talking about mistakes made uh, regarding its length why are there mistakes made when it comes to measuring snakes or exaggerations when it comes to the measurements of snakes
2: well first of all i think it's very difficult to measure a live snake I, mean, it's difficult I wouldn't to like measure. to try it <laughs> it's, it's difficult to measure a live snake that's 6 feet long accurately uh, so if you get a snake that is 15 or 20 feet long and you're putting a tape measure on it and you're trying to figure out how long it is you know the the snake's body is to some degree very elastic I mean if you think about how far you can stretch um, and you've got you know uh, 20 vertebrae or so uh Think about what happens if a snake has got three hundred vertebrae, mm-hmm. and is able to kind of stretch it uh, that uh, under under certain circumstances, and then also contract all those muscles and pull all those vertebrae closer together. It really means that it, the there's no absolute size for any given snake <laughs>
0: because
2: because of this elasticity. Okay. So uh, the bigger the snake is, the the bigger the error is going to be when you try to measure it. You see. Wow.
3: Not
0: my kind of job. (laughs) John, are giant snakes dangerous to humans? And if you could tell us a little bit about some of the cases that you cover involving giant snakes eating people.
2: You know, one time I, I wrote a paper and I made a really stupid mistake. I said that Reticulated pythons were probably not a serious threat to humans. <laughs> and this was a paper, actually it was a little field guide to the snakes in the Danum Valley of uh, Borneo. And I had been in this, in this uh, area for a couple of months um, doing an amphibian reptile study. And I knew there were reticulated pythons there, but I never saw one. And so when we were putting this field guide together, at the time, I just said, you know, reticulated pythons probably are not a serious threat to to humans. Well, uh, as it turns out, reticulated pythons, Burmese pythons, uh, African pythons uh, are all probably serious uh, threats to humans. And um, there was a a paper written by um, a guy named Heading and a herpetologist named Harry Green. And, uh, Hedding had been working with, um, a group of, uh, tribal people in the Philippines. And he, um, interviewed these people and asked them about various aspects of their life. One of them was, you know, had they had any contact with reticulated pythons? And, um, what he found was was that uh, 15 out of 58 of these people, they were called the Agata, of the males, uh, which was 25%, had been attacked by a python. And one out of 62 women had been attacked by a python. Wow. So, uh, and th- these would be reticulated pythons. Now, these people are fairly small in stature. And... Um, you know, he basically found that, uh, that 15% or 16% of the members of this tribe had known at least one person who had been killed by a python. Wow. So, uh, you know, reticulated pythons are um, are potentially a very serious threat to humans. And people who keep them in captivity uh, have been attacked by them. And I know a person who... Kept a very large uh, reticulated python, and uh, he went into its cage to clean his cage. And this was, by the way, this was in Illinois, and uh, it, it attacked him. And uh, it, he only got out of it alive because there was a um, one of his one of his uh, workers was nearby, and the guy came in and they got the snake off of him. But. Um, Burmese pythons frequently attack their owners. You know, the Burmese pythons are very popular, which is why they, in the pet trade, which is why there are so many of them in the Florida Everglades now. And, um, you know, they, they do attack people that, that are handling them. Now, it's probably unlikely that you're going to get attacked if you're walking around in the Everglades. But um, in, in captivity, people who keep big snakes should have somebody else nearby to help them escape the coils wow that's that's
3: enlightening
1: hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they were also playing chumba casino coincidence i think not everybody's loving having fun with it chumba casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness,
2: philosophy,
1: UFOs, ghosts, or
2: say Bigfoot.
1: Understood. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon.
3: So that's actually one of the things we wanted to ask about was, uh, I've seen it talked about quite a bit, is the uh, invasive constrictors in the Everglades. How, how big of a problem is this? I mean, it seems like one that would become exponentially
2: larger if they're actually able to breed there. <laughs> Well, they are breeding there, and um, you know the, the Some people have estimated that there's that there's more than ten thousand, Burmese pythons now in the Florida Everglades. Wow. Um, now, when they have these contests and they have all these guys running around down there with guns, um, looking for snakes that they think they're gonna that they think they're going to catch, and they only come up with a few of them. Uh, it shows you, I think, that the, the makes the point that snakes are absolutely excellent at avoiding uh, people and and predators, and you know they, they can hide in remarkably small places. Even really big snakes can sometimes hide in places which are very very small. But uh, it's really the a bigger problem. It's a it's a big problem for the Everglades ecosystem because um, you know the. the native fauna has had no experience with uh you know dealing with pythons that get to be fifteen to twenty feet long. And so the pythons are going to be able to uh do some pretty serious damage to the populations of mammals and birds that are that are there.
3: And I, assume, I, I think I saw that they were eating alligators too. <laughs> they do. They eat alligators <laughs> Um, it's not eat.
0: elephants, but alligators.
3: Well, yeah, but it's a, it's a, it's a very. I mean, that's a. The Everglades are just full of wildlife, so, mm-hmm. and I can't imagine much of it's ready to deal with a giant snake. Yeah, <laughs> oh,
2: I, I, well, exactly, and it's you know it's a serious problem for the, for the ecosystem. It's unlikely they will ever get rid of those pythons. I mean, once they're there, once you get an invasive species of any kind, just about. Uh, the chances of eradicating it is is almost zero uh the brown tree snakes in guam are you know an excellent example of this because uh fish and wildlife guys have been trying to get rid of those things for probably 30 years now and they have made very little progress in actually being successful yes it, yeah and they that- control the population a little bit but that those those snakes are there to stay, just like the Burmese pythons are there to stay in in uh, Florida. I remember
3: them dropping. I think it was poisoned rats all over the island, trying to help the. I don't know if the snakes actually ate those or not, but it seemed, <laughs> yeah. seemed like a crazy <laughs> idea to me. But but I I think that the key right. the lesson there is is uh, a snake doesn't have to be fifty feet long to be very dangerous to an ecosystem.
2: Right. Yeah. Exactly. You know, boa constrictors have now been introduced in several places. And um, it's, I think, you know, the people in the Everglades and the people in Hawaii, I mean, they're just now totally paranoid about uh, invasive snakes. They have dogs now that apparently check all of the, the aircraft that land uh, looking, for, looking for snakes. I, yeah, that would, that would mess Hawaii up very much.
0: <laughs> snakes on a plane.
2: Yeah, that's yeah. A
3: strange movie because they start off in Hawaii. I was like, I was, I found it less plausible that they would have been able to get the snakes into Hawaii to get them onto the plane out of Hawaii. Anyway, it's not important. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's like, <laughs> sorry, oh, Karen. Go ahead. No
0: worries, uh, John. In your book, you talk about designer snakes. What? A, what's a designer snake? Uh,
2: there is a huge industry that has grown up around aberrant patterned pythons, boas, and other kinds of snakes. And uh, the people now breed these snakes for different unusual color patterns. They might be all white or they might be partially white and partially brown. Uh, they might have, uh, you know, very, they might have a purplish color, a purplish tint to them. Uh, they have, their their irises have different uh, colors, unusual colors. And... This has become um, essentially breeding snakes to be living works of art. Mm-hmm. And uh, people will pay just exorbitant amounts of money <laughs> for uh, these unusually patterned snakes. I mean, I've seen some of them. I've seen some reticulated pythons that people had uh, that they had developed them for certain color patterns. And they were selling them for 20000 $25,000 dollars.
0: I was at a conference recently, and there was a guy selling snakes, and they were amazing different colors, and they were going for about $500 each.
2: Right. They, they become cheaper uh, the more of them that get into the market. So, right. you know, it's like the first people to breed them, uh, they make some money off of them. And then uh, the next sort of group of people come along, and they, they breed more of them. And then as they sort of flood the market, the price drops on them.
3: Right. So, are there ethical issues with uh, being a snake owner, especially of a giant snake?
2: Well, I think the the ethical issues are to be sure that if you if you own a snake that it, it does not get loose, okay. and um, th- this can cause multiple problems. It's not just that they may invade the Everglades or become um, a uh, you know a problem that way, but um, when people release an animal they th- of any kind, they think they're doing the animal a favor. Uh, when in fact, what they're doing is is they're potentially spreading diseases, um, different kinds of bacteria and viruses that the organism may be carrying, uh, that wild populations may be totally naive to and their immune systems can't handle it. Or uh, they may be carrying genetic material which is totally unsuitable and uh, get into a population and and you get some genes that are just totally inappropriate for that population causing some problems. So, um, you know, as as difficult as it is for people, they become very emotionally attached to animals. And uh, instead of uh, releasing it into the wild, they should either find somebody else to take it or euthanize it.
0: Right. And in your book, you talk about the novelty skin industry. Um, And I assume that's the industry for making handbags out of uh, um, snake skins and things like that. So how has that industry affected populations of giant snakes?
2: Well, you know, Karen, it's it's almost impossible to know. Uh, And the reason is because Nobody is out there actually counting the uh, the snakes that are in the populations or estimating the density of snakes in a given area. And uh, most of these these snakes, you know, they're they're picked up by local people and they're brought to a middleman, and the middleman um, may bring them to another middleman, and eventually they work their way into a slaughterhouse where they get chopped up. Um, you know, gutted, the skins are removed and they go to a, a tanning facility and then, uh, you know, the manufacturers buy the skins. And it's it's so difficult to sort of keep track of this because uh, snakes, as a group of animals, are, are expert at hiding. It's very difficult to get good uh, population estimates on, on most of them. I mean, I've, I've tried to do this, you uh, at, at various times and just estimating the number of population, number of snakes in a small area of a given species is, is quite a challenge.
0: Okay. So there's no legitimate farming for this sort of thing.
2: No. Um, you know, if, if there are people who will tell you that they, that they farm giant snakes or sea turtles or other kinds of other kinds of reptiles, um, But if those animals are even medium-sized animals when they're sexually mature, chances are they're not really farming them. Chances are they're just pulling them out of the wild and they're saying, oh, yeah, we breed these here. Because it's it's quite labor-intensive to feed them, take care of them, Mm -hmm. keep them healthy until they get to a size where they're commercially saleable.
3: Well, I I think you've helped us get a better handle on the real life of these giant animals, which is fantastic. Because in in our show, we like to talk about monsters, but as a springboard to talk about science topics and and Mm -hmm. to know what's real. But in your research, have you looked into some of the legendary serpents, like the, I think it's pronounced nega? are uh, the, the Midgard Serpent, these sort of uh, historical... It seems like a lot of cultures have legends of enormous serpents.
2: Um, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with those. I, I haven't really uh, studied them uh, particularly well. Um, what, I, what I have done is uh, looked at some of the... what are potentially, at least, the, the sort of the ancestral um, snake stories that uh, would go back to Africa. There's a um, group of hunter-gatherers in, in South Africa. Actually, there's several different groups of them. And they have uh, mythical snakes. And if you, if you read through their stories uh, and look at the various aspects of their, their stories, you can actually find very similar themes that run through snake stories in the Middle East, in India, Southeast Asia, Australia, and North America. So a, a lot of these um, the stories that, for example, the Naga stories or the stories of the, uh, the plume serpent from, uh, from Central America, uh, these I think these stories can all be traced back to these uh, snake stories that uh, people carried with them when they moved out of Africa. And the, uh, usually the snakes are considered to be guardians. They oftentimes protect water. Uh, they also oftentimes have the ability to uh, change the landscape. They um, oftentimes have the ability to shape shift and, and change into humans. So uh, these mythical snake stories seem to all have a very common. Uh, theme, although they they change a little bit with the culture uh, that, they, that they're present in. I, I, I really think that a lot of these these snake stories are all built upon these stories that originated in Africa.
0: Why do you think that there are so many anecdotal stories about giant snakes? They seem to be very popular and folklore.
2: Well, just because you know people are are fascinated with them. I mean when you see, when you see a snake that's capable of swallowing you, it, it has the ability to change your perspective on life, I guess.
3: <laughs> I found even just a skin in my backyard that stretched across the width of the back of my truck. And uh, I put it on the back of the truck just to measure it. And my wife came home and saw that and just lost her mind. Bless her heart. <laughs> I <I'm> too. <laughs> I mean, we've never, I've never seen a snake anything here, around here bigger than a pine snake. And that's, you
2: know four or five inches long and really really thin those are tiny um, I, pine snakes if, if it's that's not the pine snake I know pine snakes get quite quite big some people call them golfer snakes or or bull snakes but
3: could be it's like a little gra- it's not grass colored it it's um well I'll you know while uh, I'll, I'll look it up right quick um, yeah.
0: you say in your book as well that snake skins stretch and that can give you a false perception of size
2: sure. If uh, sometimes people will use skins as a way to say, oh, you know, snakes really do exceed 30 feet or, or more. And um, those are oftentimes based upon just skins that people have cut off the snake. Right. And, uh, you know, experiments that different people have done show that it's very difficult to remove the skin from a, a snake, of any snake, without stretching it by at least 20%. And sometimes you can you can stretch them much more and it's not always readily uh, obvious that they have that they have been stretched. So um, you know when if somebody says that they've got a snake skin that's 30 feet long and it proves that snakes get to be 30 feet in actual fact you have to subtract 20 percent of that which would be about six feet making the snake about 24 feet.
3: Okay. So my correction is: uh, it's a worm snake and a northern ringneck snake uh, are the two snakes. <laughs> those okay. are both very small.
2: <laughs> yeah, those are small.
3: <laughs> so, uh, I, I don't know if I've seen a pine snake or not, but apparently not. So, <laughs> uh, do you, do you think that the number of uh, sort of uh, these giant snake stories has uh, been increasing because of the internet?
2: I don't. I don't think that it has increased because of the internet. I think it just has increased. If it has increased, it's increased because there are more people, and uh, you know they're they're more interested in in snakes. I mean, snakes. Like I said, almost it's it's very difficult to find somebody who will not have a conversation with you about snakes. You can go to places where there are no snakes, and people talk about snakes. Um, you know, if you go to Ireland uh, or the Scandinavian countries, and uh, you you can find people that that have snake stories and they, they know about snakes, even though there are, are very few or no snakes, uh, present in that, in that geographic area.
3: A recent, um, just a few years ago, there was a, a giant river snake video going around that was probably just some trash in the water, but, um, it got, it was very popular because it was a sort of this Nordic myth of a, a giant snake. Um, that's I, they the people love them, <laughs> I, I, but we've been I, it's been on my mind for years. I've been wanting this to be part of Monster Talk for a long time. So I'm really for the
0: whole six years yeah. we've been doing the show, we've been talking about it. We, so here we are.
3: <laughs> getting it. I'm, I'm so glad we found you and that you were willing to talk to us because the uh, uh, finding uh, someone to, who who was both knowledgeable and willing to talk has been almost as elusive as finding a giant snake. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
0: In your book, you talk about the constrictor rule. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Well, the, con- the constrictor rule is really a policy that came out of the Fish and Wildlife Service. And it's it's basically uh, to try to reduce the chances of getting more uh, large constrictors turned loose in the Everglades or elsewhere in, in North America. And it's... Uh, because these things are injurious to the ecosystem, they, um, the government is, is certainly interested in, uh, in keeping them out of the country. And obviously they're, they're already here because uh, there are many people who are already keeping African pythons, Burmese pythons, Indian pythons, um, anacondas as pets. So uh, if, if somebody decides, oh, we're going to turn these loose in Florida... Uh, or in somewhere else, particularly along the Gulf Coast, where you've got fairly warm climates, it, the potential for having you know more ecological disasters is is certainly there. Plus, I mean, what it, what it costs to deal with it in terms of tax dollars. I know that in uh, the in the state of Illinois, um, in the Chicago area, we've had a problem with zebra mussels, and uh, zebra mussels these little mollusks that, that grow quite, quite well in uh, in uh, sewage pipes and block, block sewage pipes. Um, you know, the state of Illinois is spending tens of millions of dollars to try to control those those <laughs> zebra mussels. And when you look at what invasive species actually cost society, uh, it's huge. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, that's that's really kind of why the I think the constrictor rule was put in place because people view these these snakes as being uh, a serious problem for for wildlife for the ecosystem for humans.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So it, it's uh, it's it's one of the it's one of the policies that they can try to put in place, but whether or not it makes a difference, I don't know. I mean, they it, it sort of is after the fact. You know, you, they can arrest you. Uh, find you after you, you've turned them loose in, mm-hmm. in the uh, in the environment. So it, I, I would think that uh, probably almost any snake that could possibly be turned loose in Florida has already been turned loose. Florida already has more species of non-native lizards there than they have native lizards. Um, you know, water monitor lizards are are doing quite well. In parts of Florida, mm-hmm.
3: and uh, elderly New Yorkers, they're taking over. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, they may they may be uh, feeding the elderly New Yorkers <laughs> with the water monitor <laughs> <in> the Future.
3: <laughs> Do you, uh, so. I think for our listeners who've been worried about fifty foot snakes, we've established that they're really not likely to run into one bigger than 25
2: feet in real life.
0: Yeah, that's really <laughs> That's got to be exactly.
2: A 25-foot snake, though, is still going to be capable of swallowing a person.
3: Yeah, but yeah.
2: It is, remember that. <laughs> it's not something that should bother somebody in their everyday life in the United States.
3: No, no, it shouldn't. It shouldn't. It probably still does, though. So <laughs> do, do, um, do we know why snakes don't grow as large now than than they did in the time of the Titanoboa?
2: Well, let's assume for the moment that there was a Titanoboa cruising the uh, Amazon or Orinoco rivers today in South America. And so you've got this 13 meter forty two foot snake. And the question becomes what is it going to eat? Now you could answer that with the 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 statement anything it <laughs> wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but anacondas are already there. Uh, and uh, they're already eating the largest prey that uh, is available to them. So um, a titanoboa would just be out of luck in terms of finding bigger prey. I mean, it would have to be feeding on anacondas and crocodiles and uh, caimans. But, um, you know, it would be... Uh, like I said, it would be having it would have to eat many more prey um because it can't take in the really big meals that most of the that most of the giant snakes would otherwise eat.
3: So you you would hypothesize it's it's largely due to the lack of available food? Larger prey. Larger right. prey. Okay. Right.
0: Good. So, what are the, uh, some of the more pervasive myths about snakes that you might like to see eradicated?
2: <laughs> well, you know, in some ways, uh, I, I don't think you'll ever eradicate the myths about mm-hmm. snakes. But um,
0: you that's know, why we have this show. In some <laughs>
2: ways, in some ways, it's it's actually good to have them um, around because it, it makes it does make people curious. It also makes people somewhat stubborn because they think they know something. Uh, that they really don't know. And, um, you know, it it gives uh, people an opportunity. I think a lot of these myths, at least, give people an opportunity to kind of connect with nature because so many people have sort of divorced themselves from um, realizing that they are, in fact, part of nature and dependent on the ecosystem, uh, like all other life forms are. And uh, these kinds of myths, to some degree, are a way to make connections with, with nature. Right. Uh, which ones I, I can't think of anyone that I would like to, uh, eradicate other than the fact that maybe snakes don't get much bigger than 25 feet (laughs) uh, (laughs) as far as we know. But, um, even some, even a lot of herpetologists just insist on, on saying, Oh, the biggest snakes, they get, they get to be 30 feet or 33 feet. And, um, Anytime somebody tells me, oh, yeah, the the uh, snakes get to be 33 feet long, I know exactly which story they, they got it. You know? <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> well, you, you in the book, you do mention the, uh, the myth about uh, snakes, uh, constrictors especially, hypnotizing their prey. And uh, I remember that being in the Disney Jungle Book uh, cartoon movie, the animated film. And it looks like from the previews, they're doing a live action version of the film, and it's going to be in there as well, apparently.
2: Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think, <laughs> um, yeah, this hypnotic um, power that snakes have, I think it, it kind of goes back to this idea that when when a snake is hunting, a lot of times it just freezes in place, and it will not move, and it's waiting for the prey to come to it. And it's not hypnotizing the prey, but it's hoping that the prey does not see it and wonders close enough to it that it can strike it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Certainly a lot of vipers do this, rattlesnakes do it, uh a lot of other even non venomous snakes will will do this. So um again, you know, they somebody might interpret this as some kind of mesmerizing force that snakes have, but um in fact it's based on biology you
3: made that point very well in the book too so it's outstanding
2: people need to buy the book
3: Yes, <laughs> can you tell us about this updated version that you're working on
2: well the updated version is uh, more of a natural history book I don't focus so much on size and, and the older stories and the tales of giant snakes we tried to look at all the literature that went back to like the, the 16th century uh, and, and take what we thought would be interesting to people but in the newer version, uh, it's going to be based more on, uh, you know, what we have learned about snakes, uh, about giant snakes, uh, through science in the last uh, 25 or 30 years. And um, it'll, be a, um, it'll be a book that focuses on uh, how snakes survive, how they're related to each other, and why we think that snakes giant snakes get to be as big as they they actually do
3: well uh, we will put a link to your Tales of Giant Snakes in the show notes and when you get your new book out we can send an update to our listeners and let them know
2: about it Yeah. okay sounds good
0: well, we've just got one final question John we'd like to ask all of our guests this what's your favorite monster
2: Was my favorite monster
0: mm-hmm.
2: well I would say that if it's not if I ignore the, the giant snakes issues, I would probably say it has to be the abominable snowman or the yeti.
3: That's a good one. <laughs> yeah,
0: one of those perennial favorites.
3: And great for this time of year as we're recording this. <laughs>
0: yes, <laughs> very relevant.
3: <laughs> this this episode will probably go live in April, Um but. uh I, I am really, really so happy that you spent time with us to answer our questions about giant snakes. And
2: thank you for... Oh,
0: it was really interesting.
2: Yeah, thank you for coming on to Monster Talk with us. It was great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Oh, thanks for inviting me. I hope it turns out that it's it's what you wanted. <laughs> oh, it is. It's absolutely
3: absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. what I wanted. And I think, I think it's what the listeners will want as well. So, Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And together with my co-host, Dr. Karen Stolzno, you heard us interview snake expert and author John Murphy about giant snakes. A link to Murphy's book will be in our show notes at monstertalk.org, along with some articles about the evolutionary basis of snake fear and much more. What can we make of people like Colonel Remy von Lierde who say they saw a snake of 50 feet or longer? Until we have a body, all we can be sure of is that no recently living snake that large has been confirmed by science. Furthermore, humans are terrible at estimates of size that can easily be fooled, especially when witnessing something unusual. Still, it's a compelling idea, and like a lot of monsters we talk about on this show, we're always just one verified corpse away from changing the books. Until then, I hope you'll be satisfied with the science facts presented in this episode. Sometime around the time this episode comes out, we'll be crossing the 3 millionth download for Monster Talk. Thanks for taking the time to listen to the show, and thanks for sharing the show with your friends and for leaving us reviews on iTunes. This week, Google Play also added podcasts to their feed, so welcome to any Google Play listeners joining us. The way I've set the show up, each episode is usually a standalone, and you can listen in whatever order you want. I hope you'll take a look at our back catalog, as well as our newest entries. Say, do you self-identify as a skeptic? Are you fond of scientific thinking? Do you live in the San Francisco area? If so you should consider going to the 2016 Skeptical Conference. The 2016 conference will be held Sunday, May 15th at the Oakland Asian Conference Center. Go to SkepticalCon.org for details. Hear science communicators, meet fellow science enthusiasts. SkepticalCon.org, May 15th, 2016. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Skeptic Society or of Skeptic Magazine or of the Snake Handling Church in my hometown of Cartersville, Georgia. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks for listening.
2: For more skepticism, want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time, then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit skeptic.com today.
3: The anaconda grow,
1: the anaconda grow, the anaconda grow up to a quarter ton, hon.